Are you ready for some controversy? Well, the end of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, is a debated text. It's debated because scholars disagree as to whether or not it's actually legitimate or original. And then it's controversial because of the content that we find within the passage. Although there's a lot of content that we can cross-reference and see that it is original. But it is a debated text. It's controversial. And you're going to have to put on your thinking cap for this study on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Okay, we're going to be in Mark 16, if you take your Bible, open it to Mark 16. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. We are looking at the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned to you last Sunday that these particular verses are somewhat controversial, and the reason that they are is twofold. One is they're not in some of the manuscripts, some of the early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and you might notice that they're in brackets in some of your versions, or there may be uh, some sort of note in your Bible about the origin of these verses. So we're going to tackle those. The second reason that they are controversial is there's some controversial uh, content in the verses. And some content like the taking up of serpents, for example. And uh, what does that exactly mean? And what is the proper interpretation of that? There are some churches, uh, especially churches that you see in different parts of the nation right now, that are actually snake-handling churches. And in fact, uh, within the last couple of years, ABC did a story of a pastor who was one of these snake handlers, and he had been bit by a rattlesnake some nine times. Uh, It was his uh, opinion, his strong opinion, that whenever he was bit by a snake, he was not to seek medical attention. The last time he was bit, he went home, and he refused medical attention, and he died. And he felt like that was a noble way to die, to handle a snake in this fashion, and then to refuse medical attention. So obviously, just from that standpoint alone, some of the content in these verses becomes extremely controversial. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But one thing I, I want to do is I want to make sure that we don't isolate Mark's account. We know all four gospel writers deal with the resurrection. It's the, it's the only other thing other than the feeding of the 5,000 that's dealt, in all, dealt with in all four Gospels. So we have supplementary accounts or parallel accounts that we'll take a look at, but it's not just there. And as we study the resurrection, I'm going to give you a little bigger view of the resurrection as well so we can talk about the implications of it. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we want to know. Lord, we want to know about the evidence for the resurrection. We know that people say the the resurrection is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. Without it, the rest of the house crumbles. If Christ be not risen, then we are still dead in our sins. And we want to know, Lord, what the evidence is. We want to look at the Bible. We want to look at um, even what scholarship says about it. And ultimately, Lord, we want to know that this is a true fact, that we can rest our head on pillows at night and face funerals and memorial services with the confidence that Christ is alive. 
And because he lives, we will live also. We pray that in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you have heard the name William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a probably one of the top apologists of our day. He's not apologizing, by the way. He is giving arguments for the faith from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense like in a court of law. William Lane Craig says, after an appraisal of recent scholarship on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Professor William Lane Craig contends, quoting now, that the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the, and the origin of the Christian faith all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may say, well, what is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it is this solid that a mind like William Lane Craig would believe it, what is our evidence? Well, one of the things that we learn from the Gospel of Mark, and I've pointed this out a few times, but I don't want to just brush by this because I think that this is an important thing that we need to always keep in mind. Jesus Christ predicted his own resurrection. And I think it's important that we just take a peek back at a few verses in Mark. So go back to Mark 9 for a moment. Mark 9, look at verse 31. As we are finishing up the Gospel of Mark today, I just want to remind you that Jesus did predict his own resurrection. He said these words, Mark 9, look at verse 31. Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, the Son of Man... That's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah, is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him, which seemed to be pretty common among the apostles. Mark 10:33 is the next one. Mark 10:33 says, Jesus is speaking, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, another reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. That's the Romans there. They will mock him, look at the details, spit upon him, scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Now, I can show you many references in the New Testament and other Gospels that say the same thing. So this was said on more than one occasion that Jesus said, I'm going to die in this way. We're going to Jerusalem. The timing was the Father's timing would happen at the Passover. It will, would, will, would fulfill Passover imagery and prophecy. And I'm going to die. He gives the details of his death and he gives the detail of his resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead in the very history in which we find ourselves living. He is a liar. You might as well just dismiss the rest of what he said. If some modern so-called liberal scholars are correct and there's no literal bodily resurrection and it's some sort of metaphor for some deep meaning of the struggle between the Jews and the Romans, I would just say this, put your Bible away and go to the beach. Because if Christ is not alive, then 1 Corinthians 15 says it well, our faith is futile, that means empty. We are still in our sins, and we are of most people to be pitied. Because we have believed and preached. And by the way, I've preached it, I can't even tell you how many times. I did a memorial service yesterday for a dear family and this congregation, and we stood upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
as the anchor of our souls, as the hope when, you know, you have to stare, stare death in the face. Look, I'm, I'm not into, you know, uh, metaphors, okay? Metaphors have some value in studying literature. But I want to know that Jesus is alive, and because he lives, we will live. Amen? So we can dismiss with some of the nonsense that we hear in liberal circles when people are interviewed on television. I want to scream at my television. Like, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Walter Martin is one of my heroes, and Walter Martin went home to be with the Lord some years ago now. But he said these words about the resurrection. He said, the power of the risen Christ can transform our lives by faith through grace alone. The power of the resurrection is the shedding forth of the Holy Spirit into our lives to enable us through gifts and through fruits to witness to a dying world that's lost and on its way to eternal judgment, close quote. J.N.D. Anderson, writing on the evidence of the resurrection, says, Easter's message is either the supreme fact in history or it is a gigantic hoax. Either the resurrection is infinitely more than a beautiful story or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history, and to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. Now, I could tell you about many, many people who have studied the evidence for the resurrection, skeptics, lawyers that were challenged to study the evidence as in a court of law. Even this morning, J. Vernon McGee, in his wonderful style, preaching on KKLA, was interviewing the witnesses, and he called John to the witness stand, and Paul, not literally, he was, you know, acting on their behalf, and uh, he began to act like it was a court of law in the congregation, and he called Peter and John and Paul to the witness stand. Saul, who became Paul, is an interesting case because he was a skeptic, an enemy of Christianity. You know, each of these uh, cases, when you begin to call each of the witnesses, and eyewitnesses are extremely important, even in a day and age when we have DNA evidence and we have you know, different ways to test crime scenes, we all know that there's nothing like an eyewitness. There's nothing like a couple of eyewitnesses who verify the facts. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it said that every fact had to be verified by two or three witnesses. In fact, you could not be condemned on the eyewitness testimony of just one person. There had to be two or three. And of course, there are many more than two or three eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they give testimony. And the question is, are they reliable? Did they have, you know, what, what did they have to gain by giving testimony to the resurrection? As you begin to analyze their lives, you know that uh, the bulk of them died for their faith. They went to the grave. They faced the, the lions in the Colosseum. Some of them, they faced the executioner's sword going to their grave saying, he lives and I will not deny him. And so um, we can see that the validity of um, their accounts is something that's very, very powerful. In the New Testament, before we get into Mark's gospel, I just want to show you just kind of a, uh, this will be a, a couple of quick punches that you can make from other letters. And they're found in three letters in a row. Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. So quickly, I want to just show you kind of some supplementary content. Acts 1. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So I'm going to give you three just in a row. Call these supplementary outside the Gospels. Here's Acts 1 written by Dr. Luke who investigated the Christian faith carefully. He said, he's talking about Jesus. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, and we'll be back to the message in just a moment. We've been doing a Sunday night service called 633, and in it, we've been looking at a subject called the dark dangers of the occult. The occult speaks of that which is hidden, secret, literally occluded, behind the veil. People are fascinated with these subjects, but God warned in both the Old and New Testament that the occult is something that is forbidden and even dangerous. We want you to have access to these resources to teach you more about the occult so you can tell people who are dabbling in it or messing with it about the hope and the love and the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. You can access this information at our website, walkintruth.com. Here's Acts 1, written by Dr. Luke, who investigated the Christian faith carefully. He said, He's talking about Jesus, Acts 1, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had been by the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 2, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. These he also presented, uh, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, Acts 1, 3, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus The many convincing proofs were his many appearances and also showing the physicality of his resurrection body, inviting them to to touch his wounds, the scars, if you will. And there were many convincing proofs, as Acts 1 tells us. The very next book is the book of Romans, written by Saul, who became Paul. Just keep going to your right. Romans 1. So you got Acts 1 and Romans 1. Paul says these words. He's introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls it the gospel of God to which he was set apart to be a preacher. Acts, excuse me, Romans 1, 2. Romans 1, 2. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Romans 1, 3, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you go to the very next book to your right, it's 1 Corinthians 15 is the most exhaustive chapter on resurrection. If you want to study the resurrection, this is the chapter to study. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 are called early creedal tradition in the church. Even Bart Ehrman, who claims to be a non-Christian skeptic of the Bible, claims that the tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 dates within one year of the crucifixion and what happened to Jesus. These are the words that are recorded. This is kind of like early creedal language or uh, transmission of what's called oral tradition, which was very important in that day. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, so here you have all these eyewitnesses. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul saying, they're here if you want to talk to them. Some have fallen asleep. That's a way of saying some of them have died. As you skip down, uh, go to verse 17. As Paul is talking about the resurrection, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
Then those who have died or fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. We're not going to see them again. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Here's the implications of the resurrection. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. If you remain in Adam and you're not in Christ, you're going to die. So also in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Christ, you will live. These are the things that the resurrection, uh, the implications of the resurrection. Go back to Mark's gospel, Mark 16. Um, this is what it means to believe in the resurrection. This is what it means to have a faith that goes well beyond this current life. This is what it means to have hope. Not a hope that is just some fanciful story, not pie in the sky, not fantasy, but fact uh, embedded in our very history. Now, Mark 16 is, are these controversial verses, and they're found in uh, verses 9 through 20. And let me just give you some facts about them really quick. Our oldest Greek manuscripts and others do not have these verses. The most ancient manuscripts only contain uh, to verse 8, Mark 16, 1 through 8. There are other manuscripts that have different endings, so this section is a debated section. There are some commentaries that just end at verse 8. So if you picked up a commentary on Mark, some of them just end with uh, a notation that they argue that verse 8 is the proper ending, and that's where it should end. So no commentary even on the verses. There's other commentaries you can pick up, such as John MacArthur's commentary, where he will say that he believes the, the verses are uh, very questionable, but then goes on to give commentary. And then there are others who would hold that these are authentic. The earliest Greek versions and patristic evidence has the Gospel of Mark ending at verse 8. To the witnesses of the two earliest parchment codices, and I'm going to give you, I told you we're going to be a little technical this morning, but we're talking about now full copies of the entire New Testament. Remember that when you go back and you study manuscript evidence of the New Testament, it's incredibly compelling. It, it outdoes any really ancient book of antiquity. And we have something like 20,000 manuscripts that would inc include Greek and Latin manuscripts. Um, but the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek. Koine uh, is a word that means common or the common man's language. We call our fellowship times koinonia. It's the same idea. What we have in common. Koine Greek is, was the common man's language of the day. And so when we talk about entire manuscripts that have the entire 27 New Testament books, we're talking about these early codices uh, that have the complete um, sections that we're discussing. These two manuscripts, these early manuscripts uh, that don't have them are called Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus. Um, and then, then there's other uh, manuscripts as well. They are considered by most scholars to be the best manuscripts we have. They date from the early 300s AD and are complete manuscripts. These two manuscripts do not contain any verses after verse 8. There are also some early manuscripts, Latin manuscripts, that do not have verses 9 through 20. Some early Syrian and Arminian and Georgian manuscripts that don't have them. 
The abrupt ending, as it's called by many scholars, ending at verse 8 of Mark, is also witnessed in an old Latin manuscript they call K. Uh, other manuscripts, uh, including the Sinaitic, Syriac, Armenian versions, Adish, Opisa manuscripts, and the Georgian versions, and a number of manuscripts of Ethiopic versions all provide a wide range of evidence, and I'm quoting much from William Lane Craig, or excuse me, from um, uh, Lane's commentary on Mark, uh, that there's strong evidence that verse 8 is the ending. Origen and Clement, who both are church fathers from the middle and late 3rd century, do not seem to be familiar with these verses. They were from Alexandria, Egypt. The 4th century church father Eusebius, who was also in Alexandria, Alexandria and Jerome about the same time he may have been in Rome at this time said these verses were missing from most of the manuscripts uh, they had and they uh, they also said they were not aware of these verses Eusebius remarked that accurate copies of Mark ended with verse 8 adding that chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 were missing from almost all manuscripts Jerome echoes and Jerome wrote the uh, Latin Vulgate Jerome echoes this saying, saying that almost all Greek codices do not have this concluding portion. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Cyprian, Cyril of Jerusalem show no awareness of the existence of these verses. A number of Greek manuscripts which do not contain them have some sort of explanatory note stating that older Greek copies lack them. In other witnesses, the final section is marked off with asterisks or what's called obeli. Uh, the conventional signs used when scribes mark off what is a questionable or even spurious addition to the text. Now, don't get nervous. We are able to cross-reference manuscripts and get back to what we know is the original. We have an incredible amount of manuscript evidence. So when we cross-check uh, manuscripts, we're able to see what might have been a scribal gloss. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? A scribal gloss. Well, sometimes what happens is a scribe may put an explanatory note in a text or a manuscript, and somehow, eventually, through time, it crept into the biblical text. So we're able to see that. Sometimes these versions are very rare. There's only one manuscript that has a different ending or something like that. And it's not hard to see the consistency in the manuscripts show that the proper reading is this. We can, we can do that by you know, going back early and looking at you know, the, uh, the stream of witness, if you will. Ending the gospel at verse 8, though, does seem abrupt for some and perhaps even unnatural. The gospel ends with the angel telling the women, if you're in chapter 16, that Jesus had risen, but there is no uh, Christ, risen Christ appearing to them. So some scholars, in light of this, believing that the ending of Mark has been lost, they argue that verses 9 through 20 are not the original, but actually the original is lost. And there are some uh, letters that are referenced in the New Testament, for example, a Corinthian letter that we're aware of that Paul talks about that we don't have. Some of them are lost. Remember, we are relying on copies, early copies. We have a fragment from the Gospel of John that dates to about 115 to 120 A.D. That's extremely early. A lot of scholarship is dating the Gospels earlier and earlier, so there's, there's really no chance for any kind of legend to, to come in there. Yet, they do say that it's, it's a little strange, and maybe there was another conclusion to the Gospel and somehow that uh, concluding section was lost. 
What are the reasons that scholars conclude that verses 9 through 20 are not authentic? Number one, if you're taking notes, the vocabulary seems to shift from what scholars say is not characteristic of Mark. They call it Markan vocabulary. So they say the, the section, verses 9 through 20, don't seem to be, doesn't seem to represent the typical way in which Mark writes. There are, one, there are 183 words in these verses in the Greek text, of which 53 are not found elsewhere in Mark and are unique to this section. 21 of those words in the long, what's called the long ending, verses 9 through 20, are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So the number one evidence, they say, is that it doesn't seem to be the typical way that Mark talks. They say the transition from verses 8 to 9 is grammatically awkward. It is not a smooth transition. The grammar doesn't seem to flow properly. The subject shifts from the women to the implied subject of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in verse 1, and now he reintroduces her more thoroughly in verse 9. Why does Mark feel he has to reintroduce Mary so thoroughly now? Just take a look. Look at verse 9. After he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. They say, well, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in verse 1. Why does he reintroduce her and now feel like he has to say that she was a woman who Jesus cast seven demons out of? Now, Luke tells us that was the case. Mary Magdalene was delivered from demonic possession, but they say this seems still a bit unnatural and doesn't flow well. Um, possible objections to this line of reasoning. Here's the reverse argument. In the rest of Mark, there are 102 words which are unique, i.e., they're not used anywhere else in Mark. They only appeared one time in Mark. So if there are another 53 in the long ending, some scholars say that's not terribly earth-shattering. Sometimes when a writer's writing something, they use unique words in a section because the content may be different from the rest of what they're writing about. So this is not always what we would say is determinative. This doesn't just make the case that just because there's some unique words, it doesn't mean the same guy wrote it. For example, some scholars said that Paul didn't write 1 Timothy and Titus because he seems to write differently, but he was older then, and he was writing on some different subjects. So just because there's some unique words, you know, if you wrote 10 letters to different people on different subjects, you would probably use some unique words. We would, we'd be able to analyze your writing and see the way that you typically wrote and words that you would use quite often. But you, you, you might use some unique words if you were writing on a certain subject that you didn't write on in the other nine letters that we studied. Everybody with me? So while this gets a little technical, this is not always an open and shut case. Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael, and I appreciate you listening to today's message. I want to tell you about the store at walkintruth.com. On the store, we have a brand new teaching up. It's on the occult. It's called The Dark Dangers of the Occult, and we have taught on the subject of demon possession, and we also have taught on the subject of Wicca or witchcraft, and there's more to come. And you need to know about this subject. You need to know what's going on with the occult, what the Bible says about it. It warns about it being forbidden. It warns that you should not mess with it. But there's also something else. We need to reach out to people in love with the truth of Jesus who've gotten involved in the occult. You can have access to this information, these resources to learn more and to become a more effective ambassador for Christ. It's all available at the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. Thanks for listening to today's program. 
Follow Walk in Truth when you download the free Radio Scribe app today.